Tonight, we delve into how Mr. Trump's extraordinary appearance today is but the latest chapter in a long history of legal battles and political power plays, with a close look at the former president's playbook to weaponize the courts in his favor. Plus, the investigation of the Trump family's rise to wealth and power. This special edition of Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Is Donald Trump the most litigious president in U.S. history? Well, a new book suggests that not only is the answer a resounding yes, but that over his lifetime, Donald Trump has learned to weaponize the legal system to his advantage and has even carried the practice into the Oval Office. Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits, offers a comprehensive analysis of the president's legal challenges over the years, beginning with a racial discrimination suit early in his New York real estate career. It's written by Jim Zirin, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and self-described Republican, who makes the case that everything you need to know about Donald Trump you can learn from the way he's used, some would say abused, the legal system for well over three decades. So, here to discuss the plaintiff-in-chief and the president's temperament and presidential philosophy is attorney, author, and talk show host, Jim Zirin. Jim, it's nice to have you here. Nice to be here, Jack. Nice to be here with you. But let's start with the big picture. And you, you say in this that litigation is the key to understanding Donald Trump. What do you mean by that? Well. We inherited the adversary system from the English, and it was thought that the adversary system is the best way to arrive at the truth because uh, the competing sides would tell, uh, put forward their best arguments and tell their side of the story. Uh, Trump saw the legal system in a different kind of way. He saw it as a, a weapon uh, to destroy the adversary, not necessarily to get at the truth, perhaps even to get at a lie. But uh, the legal system could be a very potent weapon in his business arsenal, later in his public arsenal. So what drew you? You've written before um, on, on courts and court systems. But what drew you to this story and made you decide, I, this is the book I want to do now? I started uh, with a, uh, an abiding interest in Roy Cohn. Oh. It's the subject of a movie that's out in which I'm one of the talking heads right. uh, called Where's My Roy Cohn? Uh, and Cohn met Trump in 1973. I knew of Cohn from my days in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, Trump met Cohn in a bar. He'd been sued by the Department of Justice and the Nixon administration for violation of the Fair Housing Act because he discriminated in housing. The case against him was overwhelming. Uh, he went to a number of reputable lawyers who said, your best course is to settle the case with the Justice Department and agree not to discriminate anymore. Uh, Cohn said, you've been misadvised, nothing doing, fight. 
attack, counterattack, and we'll beat them into the ground. Trump liked that advice. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he retained Cohn as his lawyer. And the first thing they did was they counterclaimed against the government for $100 million. The second thing they did was they launched an attack against the government attorneys. And they said that the government attorneys were engaging in stormtrooper-like tactics, Gestapo-like tactics, in uh, the way they approached witnesses and employees of the Trump organization. Uh, the judge very quickly dismissed this counterclaim for $100 million against the government uh, and held a hearing and found that the lawyers were guilty of no misconduct whatsoever. That's all that happened in the case. And at the end of the day, Trump settled the case with the Justice Department, agreed not to discriminate anymore, and got the same result he would have gotten doing what uh, was suggested initially. if it had been suggested in the first place. So th this this got you interested in it. Now, we talk about it, and it's and it's a it looks like a a, a uh, mileage meter in a car yes. where the numbers are rolling over, but it talks about an odometer. That odometer at thirty five hundred. See, you went to Princeton, I went to Yale. <laughs> it came to you quickly. It didn't come to well, me. Well, maybe the, at Yale they adjusted the. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but it talks about some 3,500 lawsuits. Now, people might look at that and say, oh, okay, is, is that sort of apocryphal, or are we really talking about that many lawsuits? What's the answer to that? Well, of course, I didn't count them myself, right. but uh, USA Today mm -hmm. uh, used the 3,500 figure, mm -hmm. and it was corroborated by the American Bar Association, which used a 4,000 figure. Yeah. Uh, it's partly thought that uh, Trump had more lawsuits than the top three real estate developers in the United States combined. And uh, so I thought 3,500 was probably a safer figure than 4,000. I went with 3,500. I was more interested in the types of litigation. Yeah, talk, talk about that he a little was bit. What, what sort of type? Because the, again, the book is, it, it's, it's, a, a, it's a compelling read. And you, know, you don't try to catalog each and every case, obviously. But you do talk about different categories. So what sort of categories did you find that, that were most interesting to you? Well, of course, uh, Trump brought slightly more suits than cases where he was on the receiving end, although he was on the receiving end of a lot of different kinds of suits. He had suits with all of his partners. Uh, he would sue them uh, under RICO. He would sue them for a billion dollars. Uh, he would try to get money These from them. These are his them. partners. These are his partners. So you had the Pritzkers. Right. You had Conseco, who was his partner in the GM building in New York. You had his Chinese partners on the West Side Yards. Uh, one of his Hong Kong partners uh, said, you've got to understand Donald Trump. Uh, he likes litigation for lunch. Uh, all these cases uh, were dismissed unfavorably to Trump. And um, so those were the suits with partners. He was sued by the government for money laundering in Atlantic City. He was sued by taxing authorities. Uh, he was sued by the uh, county of Palm Beach for an 80-foot uh, high flagpole in front of his estate at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there were silly suits. There were spite suits. He sued a critic for the Chicago Tribune uh, who said one of his projects uh, would be an eyesore on the skyline. Uh, that case was dismissed. Uh, the one that, um, that I always uh, enjoy recounting is uh, that uh, Trump uh, apparently uh, got wind of the fact that in Baldwin, Long Island, uh, there were uh, two people, a father and a daughter, who owned a travel agency called Trump Travel and Tours. Uh, now, it was called Trump Travel and Tours because they booked bridge tours for people, mm -hmm. and also because Trump's like Ace Hardware, it signified excellence. Trump had never been in the travel business. He'd never been in business in Baldwin, um, Long Island. He'd never been in business in Long Island. 
but he got wind of this and he sued them for using the Trump name. Mm. And they exhausted their life savings defending the suit. Uh, the daughter said, uh, you know, why would I want to use the name Trump anyway? He's a misogynist and a racist. Uh, and I don't know that it helps our business, but they stuck to their guns. At the end of the day, there was a settlement where they agreed to reduce the size of the sign uh, Trump travel right, to get that done. And that was the disposition. I, I would suspect that it, either President Trump himself or his allies and supporters would take a look at, at the book and say, well, you know what? This is just another illustration of him utilizing the laws uh, in, a, in a way that maybe was more creative than other people. Um, he, he, he saw an area where he could gain an advantage by using the laws. We've heard the president himself when he was asked about his, his, uh, the variety of bankruptcies involving his companies, and he said, I use the laws that existed there. Um, I didn't make this up. The laws were there. So I suspect that his supporters would look at this and say, look, this is just a matter of him, maybe more so than anybody else, but using the laws to his own personal advantage. What, what would your answer be to that? Well, of course, he lost most of the cases, so uh, the law was not on his side, and he was not claiming the benefit of the law. He was really relying on the American system of justice where each side bears his or her own legal fees. Under the English to like system, the British, as opposed to the British system, where loser pays. Loser pays. So uh, someone would like the couple in uh, in Baldwin, Long Island, were bankrupted uh, defending this case that Donald Trump brought. Now, why did he bring the case? Did he bring the case because these people were costing him money? Because uh, he was legitimately aggrieved? No, he the brought the case out of pique and spite, and um, that's a misuse of the legal system. I mean, let, last question for you. There's, there's so much in this book that, that people who are interested in this or, should read, and they'll, they'll find it compelling, whether they agree or not. But last question for you, and taking it into today and, and what's going on with the impeachment inquiry. You, you talk about how Roy Cohn's lasting message to Donald Trump is, is you never apologize, um, you don't surrender, you don't settle, you always attack. Are you seeing evidence of that advice from Roy Cohn playing out today in terms of the president and his allies in the impeachment inquiry? The answer, of course, is yes. Uh, the other um, uh, canon of Roy Cohn was no matter what happens, always claim victory and go home. And uh, so when uh, Trump has a conversation with the president of Ukraine in which he's clearly uh, extorting him and pressuring him, to uh, investigate Joe Biden and uh, threatening to withhold aid as the quid pro quo unless he does, and this has been corroborated by at least six people in the position to know, one of whom recently changed his testimony. But uh, Trump engages and has historically engaged in asymmetrical warfare where you don't really meet uh, the charge that's made against you, but you attack the accuser. And that's exactly what he's done in the uh, Ukraine investigation. Uh, he has attacked the whistleblower because he didn't have firsthand knowledge. Whistleblowers sometimes don't have firsthand knowledge. And uh, that's, uh, secondly, the whistleblower was corroborated. And thirdly, there's no issue whatsoever about what the whistleblower said, but still he wants the whistleblower's identity to be revealed. He wants to torture the whistleblower who committed treason. He's out to find spies. Roy Cohn was out to find spies. Uh, Roy Cohn was uh, one of the prosecutors of the Rosenbergs. When Trump says that Adam Schiff 
intimates that Adam Schiff should be executed for treason. I mean, this is right out of the Roy Cohn playbook. And uh, we see this resonating again and again in Trump's behavior. So I guess this is really the last question I should ask you, which is, given what you say in the book and what you've said, are you at all worried that you could become lawsuit number 3,501? I'm frequently asked that question, and I hope I am, because it'll be, do wonders for the sale of the book. Uh, Michael Wolff's book, uh, Fire and Fury, probably would have sold about 3,000 copies. It sold a million after Trump uh, threatened to sue him. Well, it'll be interesting. Jim, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for spending so much time with us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. You'd be well. A pleasure. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The Trumps, the Kushners, and the rise of two power-hungry American dynasties. That's the subject of a fascinating new book from Andrea Bernstein, American Oligarchs. The Kushners, the Trumps, and the marriage of money and power. Uncovers how both families rose from humble immigrant roots to the pinnacle of power and influence. It traces how two families harnessed New York and New Jersey politics to gain valuable tax breaks and built their wealth on federal programs designed to help the middle class, often to the exclusion of blacks and other minorities. And it brings the story to the modern age when the two families, now joined by marriage, would bring those same practices to consolidate their power on a global scale. Joining us now is award-winning investigative journalist Andrea Bernstein, who for decades has been covering the confluence of money, power, and corruption in the worlds of business and politics. She's also the co-host of WNYC ProPublica podcast, Trump Inc. Andrea, welcome to Metro Focus. It's really great to be here with you. Oh my God, it's so great. This book is intense, to put it mildly. <laughs> so first, I just want to start because this seems to be the administration that has spawned a million books. So what was it about this particular narrative that you found to be the most unique? So what I wanted to do was to tell not just the story of what's happening now and what's happening in the White House, but mm. to tell the whole multi-generational saga of these two families and how they came together but it's also a story about our democracy and the choices that we have made as a nation or not made that have led to an increased influence of wealth in our modern politics. Much more. Every day we see more influence than we did the day before. And even for me, I mean, I've covered corruption, particularly in New York and New Jersey, for a quarter century. And I have never seen anything like what is going on now. So what I wanted to tell was <laughs> these three strands braided together, the two families plus us and mm -hmm. our democracy and the choices we've made and perhaps different choices that we could make in the future to correct for some of these trends. Well, also, I want to ask about the use of the word oligarchs, because that tends to make, I think, most people think of uh, Russia and some of the political corruption that we see there. Why choose that word in the title for your book? So it's really interesting because when I came up with the title, I wasn't I didn't know about all of the Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs that we were going to learn about <laughs> subsequently through the Mueller report, through the Ukraine investigation. But what I did understand fundamentally is that in our own society, there is such a greater influence by wealthy people on government. So let me backtrack a moment. I mm -hmm. think one of the 
aha moments for me when I was writing the book was during Paul Manafort's trial. And there was a witness that was put on the stand who was a consultant that worked with Paul Manafort in support of the corrupt Ukrainian strongman president. And they kept him in power for 10 years. And this witness was asked, do you know who paid you? And he said, oh, yes, very rich people. They call them oligarchs. And to me, this was such an aha moment because I thought to myself, there's no super PAC, there's no campaign finance committee. The oligarchs just pay for the consultants to get the candidates they want with the understanding that those candidates will then enable them to keep getting richer and richer. And it becomes a spiral. So they get richer, they can support the candidate they like more. Mm -hmm. And that's what is happening in Ukraine. Now, we are not there yet. We still have a system of disclosures. We still have a democracy. But we are moving towards that. And one of the big reasons we're moving towards that is Donald Trump, both because of the ways he behaved as a businessman and the way he behaved as has been behaving as president. So as a businessman in New York, he and I didn't even realize this when I started writing, but he really acted in an oligarchic way. He gave so much money to local elected officials mm -hmm. and expected something in return. I mean, so I've called many, many, many public officials over the years. And I've said, do you know why so-and-so gave you a donation? And it's always like, well, they support my politics or et cetera. With Donald Trump, when I would call people, when they were being honest, and I would say, do you know why Donald Trump gave this to you? And they would be, oh, yes. I know because he told me. He called me up screaming at me. And he was, I gave you a $20,000 contribution. Where's my permit? Where's my variance? Where's my tax break, et cetera. So he had an extremely transactional view of politics, even in a world where everybody in the real estate industry understands that you need to contribute to people because they control your business. Donald Trump and his father before him were outliers. So they had this same practice of being wealthy people who would contribute to government officials, would get benefits in return. One of the tax breaks he got for his earliest business deals, I just went and checked with the New York City Department of Finance, it was worth $400 million in total. $400 It was million. $400 million. Now, he sold the property. This was the what is now the Grand Hyatt Hotel. He no longer owns it. Okay. But he negotiated a deal for a 40-year tax break that the city is still paying. So he practiced this system of giving a lot of money to the politicians, expecting to get something back, and then giving them more. And that is the oligarchic model and the American oligarchic model that he has brought with him to the White House. So in the White oh. House, he has telegraphed to mm -hmm. very wealthy people, I am going to treat you the way I expected to be treated as a businessman. And he does this every day. He does it openly. People who patronize much. his hotels, Great his golf courses, not to mention doing the old-fashioned, just giving to his campaign, mm -hmm. get preferential treatment. We see it. We hear it. There are tapes. He tweets it out. If he doesn't like you, he will say that you should be investigated by the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. And that, too, is oligarchic behavior. So the title, even more than I knew when I chose it when I started this book project two years ago, I think has unfortunately borne out. Well, one of the things that I also thought was so interesting is that uh, your book, 
not only does it not pull any punches, it doesn't really let anyone off the hook. And what I think so many people might also at this point associate with the president is, well, he's, you know, he's part of the uh, problem with the GOP, et cetera. And actually, no, the whole time he was donating and expecting these favors from both parties. Right. And as a matter of fact, I mean, he started his career by essentially controlling the Brooklyn Democratic bosses. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the major ways the Trump family real estate business was built, was by getting the abatements, the favors, the federal loan packages, which were often controlled by people who were controlled by the party. So for him, it was not only it was not only not Republican, but it was actually Democrat for, for many, many years. And it is a certainly this sort of overall pattern of contributions is something that this country is dealing with the troubling consequences of. We just passed the 10th anniversary of the Citizens United Court decision. And that was the decision that allowed unlimited basically corporate yeah. contributions into campaigns and we're living with the effects of that and and Donald Trump benefited from that which was something I mean that court decision was very consciously funded by the court case by very wealthy families in America so the DeVos family the Prince family this is related to Betsy DeVos mm -hmm. the education secretary so they wanted to get rid of campaign finance regulation and they supported this lawsuit and they won they broke the system along the way. I mean, one of their scenes in the book, I talk about being in Ohio in 2010, mm, right yes. after the court decision. <laughs> and there are so many ads, and the ads say things like uh, they have pictures of prison bars, they have pictures of bags of cash, they say Washington is terrible, your government officials are crooks. Mm -hmm. And it was 24-7. It was a noticeably big boost in television airtime from previous campaigns I'd covered. Well, if you're a rational person and you live in a swing state and all you hear is all the, the time is, terrible, yeah. is the government is stealing from you and then Donald Trump comes in and says, the government's stealing from you, I'm going to fix it. That was an acknowledgement that he made very good use of. Now, of course, he didn't fix it. He broke it beyond recognition. But he was able to play upon the system that had been broken by a lot of people that came before him. Of course. Yeah. And without getting too much further into that, I do want to talk, though, about the stories of both of these families. Because mm. these are two immigrant families, yeah. um, which juxtaposed to some of the policies from the administration makes it incredibly ironic. But tell me a little bit about, let's start with the Trumps and then, of course, the Kushners, which is an incredibly harrowing story. Right. So one of the, I mean, Donald Trump's grandfather, Friedrich mm. Trump, immigrated in 1885, which was a time like our own, it was the Gilded Age, so big disparities in wealth. And not just, it wasn't just that people were wealthy, they wanted everyone to know it. So there was a <laughs> restaurant in Manhattan, Delmonico's, where there was an artificial lake and there were swans swimming around and people had actual gold toilets in their homes. The big really? mansions that were built up and down the Hudson Valley were Gilded yeah. Age mansions. I mean, people were wealthy mm -hmm. and they wanted the world to know it. But a difference between that time and our own time was that you could still change your social class. So that's what Friedrich Trump did. He arrived in New York, he worked here for a little bit as a barber, but then he very quickly goes west and he gets into the hospitality business, first in Seattle and then in the Yukon. And 
During the last North American gold rush, he builds a series of restaurants in the Yukon, which are catering to the appetites of the prospectors for food and liquor and access to sex. And he situates his restaurants in places where there'll be a lot of foot traffic, a lot of people coming through. He makes money. Many people in the gold rush lose money. He comes back to New York and he invests in real estate in Queens, right at the time that the government is getting ready to build a bridge to Queens. So Queens, which had been fairly cut off from Manhattan at that time, you had to come through Brooklyn or you had to come by boat, is suddenly about to become much more accessible, which means that land is going to become much more valuable. And that really becomes the template for the Trump family business because they understand that it's not just the land, it's the way the government is going to do things to enhance the value of the land uh -huh. that is important. And then they begin the cycle, first mostly with Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, and then Donald Trump of donations and benefits and tax benefits. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is about how Trump Tower, which was at the, so there's a term in real estate called Tiffany location, which means the best location in a city. Yeah. So Trump Tower was built at the actual location of Tiffany's. <laughs> and yet, Donald Trump was able to argue a court case that he was entitled to tens of millions of dollars in tax breaks that were designed for affordable housing. So that was the Trump family business model, and that's how their business developed. Now, when Trump passed the Jobs Act, the, jobs, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, it, because it allowed so much more accumulation of wealth by the very wealthy, mm -hmm. and in particular by corporations, what it meant was that the social elasticity that his grandfather had benefited from, that Friedrich Trump had benefited from, was available to fewer and fewer people. So it's harder to change your class now than it was, than it was during when, the Gilded Age. Right, when Friedrich Trump arrived. Now, I want to say that, um, you know, these are, I mean, Joe and Ray Kushner had four children. There was a split in the family. And some of Jared Kushner's cousins have made different choices in their lives. So one of the things I really wanted to point out in the book is that while these families are emblematic, they're not typical. And they made choices. And one of the things I wanted to do in American Oligarchs was to trace the choices that these specific families made. Mm -hmm. Because if one thinks those are not the correct choices, and I show where the choices were made, there's a sense of, okay, well, there is power in understanding what happened here. Andrea, thank you so much thank for you. a great book, for a fabulous podcast. And um, yeah, I really cannot emphasize enough how much of a fascinating read and a better understanding it gave me of these two families. Thank you so much. It's great to speak with you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.